RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. The Trek Files, Season 4, Episode 11, Star Trek The Original Series Budget, April 17th, 1967. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Hey, welcome back, Star Trek fans, Star Trek historians, any students of media history, in fact, right now. We have a great show for you today, and of course, all you Trekophiles spelled with an F. Another dive into a combination of, um, you know, Star Trek history and media history, television history, and how a TV show works. Going to get a little inside, a little uh, inside ball here today. Uh, take a look at our documents, as always, right there on our Facebook page. We've got several up from the original series era that show some of the people breakdowns. Above the line? Below the line? What is that? We'll tell you. And also exactly how much an episode of Star Trek cost in 1967. Take a look at all of those. It's a lot of fun stuff there, and that's why I have a really fun guest back with us today to talk about it. So take a look. And we'll be right back. Star Trek, series budget above the line, April 17th, 1967. Producer, Gene Kuhn, 3,500. Associate producer, Bob Justman, 1,800. Director, 3,000. Casting or dialogue director, 611. Executive producer, Gene Roddenberry, 1,925. Secretaries, assistant to producer Ed Milkis, 600. Wow, above the line, below the line, Trekophiles, uh, $1967. Uh, what does it all mean, and, and how does it possibly relate to today? You know what? I can think of no better person to ask than our guest. I'm glad to have him back again this week, Mike Demerit. How you doing? I'm I'm good, and you're good, and you are also you know one of the longtime Star Trek assistant directors. Not to just be in that box, but being on stage, knowing how these crews, how people interact. You've done your fair share of budgeting and adjacent budgeting, and all of that, and those concerns. I, you're the first person I thought of to share some of this with. What you know, we're looking at 1967 here. Yeah. What's the first thing that? And you know Star Trek, so what's the first thing that uh, hits you as you're looking at? Well, actually, the very first thing I did when I saw this was try to make it relative. Um, so I, I went online and opened up an inflation calculator and said, "What does that mean now? What, what is that relative dollars?" Mm-hmm. And uh, just out of you know, I saw William Shatner, 5,500. You go, well, 5,500 an episode. So, you know, shooting six days, that's that's less than 5500 a week. If you think about that in the modern context, there's a lot of people who can say, you know, I'm close to that. <laughs> but when you when you punch in right. for inflation, that comes out to over $42,000. So relatively speaking. Where is that on this? How does that scale out to? This is a lead in a one-hour drama, network drama. Right. How does that compare to? Well, is this season yeah. two? Yes. Um, I think it's comparable. Fifty thousand is a reasonable thing for someone who's who's on a multi-year contract because one of the things they do is they pre-build the raises for a certain number of right. years, so they can so budget they, on that. Yeah, so you can't force them. And that's why you see when you know that magic year five or six comes along, you'll see these leaps in salaries. I think Seinfeld, you know, went from whatever his starting was, which was probably close to fifty thousand, to a million. 
Well, yeah. Or you see people, you see the friction and the sparks fly when a breakout show happens and yeah. just goes to stratosphere and suddenly the lead or the, the hot character wants to break contract and renegotiate. Right. And you, I can, you know, I go back to Carol O'Connor and All in the Family. Yeah. That's an ancient example, but it happens all the, all the time. Well, he had one advantage, though, in that. I mean, if we're going to bring up All in the Family, the show was canceled. So at the end of its first season, they canceled it because of lack of ratings. Then the reruns came and the ratings came. So the reason he was in a position to renegotiate is they had released him. And they had to get them all back. Oh. So that was a, a unique uh, moment. But he would have got his money eventually because it ran so long. And uh, when you talk about reputation, once you build a pay reputation, it's like a, it's a whole complicated thing. But pay reputation can drive what you get paid more than your skill. Um, it's just I got paid this last time, so I get paid more. And one of the things that's been revealed a lot. Whether it was success or a failure. Yeah, whether it was success or failure doesn't matter. It's just that's what I get paid. And what has been revealed a lot in the modern era, thankfully, after, you know, 80 years of abuse, <laughs> is that uh, women get the worst side of this, mm-hmm. right? They they don't have the track history. They don't have the same agency. At least they didn't. Uh, and therefore, you see someone who is of equal billing, just as important, getting paid half or a third of what their male counterpart is getting paid because the male counterpart has a longer list of things behind them to make a basis for salary. And, and you can look those up on your own. There's plenty of famous examples. Um, even the men are embarrassed by it sometimes. The gap is so yeah. far. Well, that's that's one thing about 2019, where we're in 2018, 2019, where we're living now, that that's, that's exposing. What I, what I'm curious here on... So we have a we have a somebody's doing budgeting. This is a series budget. Okay, so yeah. just to explain the difference, right? There's episodic. There'd be a, a budget for each episode. So when you look at a series budget, they're looking for or the like pattern. a pattern. I was going to say a pattern budget. Yeah, right. and the, and they're saying we're assuming we're going to do six days. We're assuming we're going to do twenty six programs. They've amortized some of their costs out. We don't see those pages. Uh, and we're all and again for everybody that's seeing all our documents, we're looking at the above the line sheet. Right, and above the line. Still to this day, we divide above the line from below the line. What does that mean, Mike? Well, above the line are the creative forces. So actors, writers, producers. uh, And the thing that you have to conceptualize is everybody else is below the line, even if they're creative. So the director of photography, below the line. But isn't that... Unless they've got some special contractual deal. But isn't that Unless basically, producer, yeah. historically, isn't that basically if they're in the opening credits, they're above no. the line, if they're in the... No. Okay. Th- those are old um, old concepts that have long gone away. Okay. Uh, it's a starting place. Are, it's a starting place. But there are people who are below the line who could be in the front credits or not. Um, the dividing line between above the line and below the line is the line producer. So the line producer is the first person, or the, you can think of them as the very top of below the line, or the first or the very bottom mm-hmm. of above the line. <laughs> the first among equals. Right. And their primary focus is looking down at the cost below them and the below the line costs. The main thing you really want to take away, just to simplify it and not go into the you know 10-week course I teach at New York Film Academy <laughs> on this very subject, but just to simplify nice it. Nice plug. Oh, yeah. I should tell them I did that. Um, <laughs> the idea is this. Your above-the-line costs are far more likely to explode right. than your below-the-line costs. So if you knew Chris Hemsworth and you had put together a $4 million low-budget film, And someone said, you know, hey, Chris wants to read that script. And suddenly Chris says, I'm available from here to here. And, yeah, I love this, and I'll do it for you for a million dollars. Well, that's more than you had budgeted for above the line. You don't say no. 
You turn back to your investors and say, Chris Hemsworth will do this for a million dollars, and they will find that money. And suddenly your above-the-line costs explode. Now, some of your below-the-line costs might explode. Now they might not want your roommate to be the director of photography. They want someone <laughs> who has a track record. You're going to buy some trucks you didn't have before. You're now you need costs. a certified dog walker for Helmsworth's <laughs> dog. Right. Correct. There'll be costs, but your below the line will not expand at the rate above the line does. Mm-hmm. In the modern streaming world, uh, producers I know who've had success at, Net, at Netflix uh, and, and at Hulu and at uh, Amazon have told me that they are just told outright in the budget meeting that here's your above-the-line cost, here's your below-the-line cost. But if you find an actor that you think is a good fit, run him by us. We can free up another quarter million. So they, they automatically think of the top as flexible, right. depending what you're going to get, because what gets you to watch the show, what gets you to go to the movie theater... It's not the grip. <laughs> you know, you have the best first AD. Someone asked me, why isn't there an Academy Award for a best first assistant director? I said, because the best first assistant director is working on some crappy, horrible film and managed to keep this thing together and did an awesome job. And if you gave them an award for it, it no one would know what you're talking about. It, it would just become a popularity award. And I'd never get you to be a guest on the drug file. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying the skills for work below the line, it doesn't matter what your budget is mm-hmm. the work is the same. It doesn't matter. If you're doing a Marvel movie or you're doing a low-budget horror film, the work is the same. Below the line, what you get paid would change, but the work remains the same. Whereas above the line is a very particular calculus. You know, how many, if we get this person in this film, they're worth this much in Japan. Oh, that person, if you can get them, they're worth this much in the, in the African continent. Oh, if you can get this person, you just opened us up to the whole Scandinavian, yeah. and all of a sudden their values are seen very differently than what, what Dolly Grip did you get? Right. Well, in 1967, yeah. <laughs> in a pre-globalized world, in a pre-streaming world, where we've got three channels, yeah. and we do have guild, you know, we have DJ, Director's Guild, Writer's Guild, Screen Actors, those things are in play. They're all in play. The unions are there. Yeah. Um, but looking, so we've got the above the line. Is there anything, uh, I mean, these are pretty, Star Trek, I, I, I love the fact that Dorothy's down here typed in as a script consultant. Mm-hmm. It's how they wedged her in. Star Trek strikes me, you know, they had a tiny staff for everything. Even next gen and onward, you had script staffs of, you had five, six, seven, eight people on on writing staff. Yeah. Uh, and now today, there's like 47 people on writing. I kid. <laughs> Unless you're doing eight episodes, uh, right? Then you get 470. <laughs> no, um, but you know, there barely was Gene, and then a number two like Gene Kuhn, and then Dorothy, and then everything was was freelance. There was no writing staff, so they've got her. But that was unusual because Star Trek had such. You know, it wasn't a western. It wasn't a sitcom. Star Trek had this specialized universe. It was handy to have someone like Dorothy, and you could argue that she should have been. You know, promoted up there too. But in a modern in a modern world, by second season, she would not be. She would have a producer right. title, right? As a writing producer. Well, and Bob Justman in the modern world would not be associate producer for all three years. He would be producer. Yeah, he'd be producer, or maybe even supervising producer. So there's more here to compare than just the money amounts. Well, also one of the things I, I think you should when you look at this, you know, put a little salt on this. This is a pattern budget estimate, so they probably mm-hmm. just wanted to specifically name. Why do you have a script editor in your pattern? Because it's going to be this person. And I think they're, they're saying Dorothy Fontana is part of the regular pattern expenditure, regardless of what the cost of the individual mm-hmm. episode are. On the individual episode's budget, you would see if there might be another writer budgeted. You might, you'll see, like, uh, in the below line section here, 
and you want to jump to below the line, right? Um, you'll notice that like there's no way they only had one makeup artist. Right. There's, there's no way. They had one wardrobe person. But these are the people who are definitely going to be there. When you do Journey to Babel, you're going to have to have more. <laughs> yeah, more people. And that would show oh, up in your yeah. in your regular budget. And ironically, it's not that way on the set. Because those the, the additional wardrobe person may be shown technically as an additional expense on each episode. But they're on every episode, which means they were on every episode. So right. they were a regular part of the crew. They weren't a day player. So they aren't necessarily named in these documents, but sometimes the mechanics of who you're talking to is how these documents are written. So you don't want to show this high, giant crew expenditure to someone who's deciding whether or not they're going to do your season. Mm -hmm. So you might selectively omit um, and keep it down to what they are expecting to see, you know. Um, I find that, you know, you have a gaffer and a best boy, you have a key grip and a second grip. Yeah. There were not four people doing the lighting on Star Trek. Real quick, layman's terms, 20 words or less, gaffer, best boy, uh, key grip, second grip. Uh, gaffer, <laughs> Go. electric, plays with light. Uh-huh. Grips, shadow, block the light. The analogy I like to best use, boy. Uh, best boy is the representative uh, of of the all of the either grips or electricians. There's one of each. All of the people right underneath the keys. So they're sort of second in command. Okay. But they handle all the paperwork. They're sort of like the second AD of the electric department. They make sure you got your W4s filled out and all and, that stuff. And haven't some of these uh, romanticized terms kind of gone the way of blander things? Don't we just say electrician and chief electrician and lighting tech and all uh, that now. CLT has always been the official ACLT assistant chief elect, uh, lighting technician and CLT have always been the technical definitions but the gaffer the reason it's called gaffer is because there's a stick a type of tool called a gaff and they use it in shipping in the in the days before when ports where you pulled the ship up and had to tie it off. So the gaff would allow you to grab and pull, and you could oh. get something off of a higher. Uh, they learned quickly to use the same thing. I get something off a higher shelf, grab and pull. So in the early days before there was electric lighting, you had to move windows and you had to move um, mirrors, and sometimes the, you had to reach up quite high. So you'd get a gaff stick, and the gaffer would pull this thing to move the light. And then when the big lights came out on their way up, they didn't want to stand up on a ladder in front of a light that's got, you know, 800 degrees of heat coming off of it. So they grabbed the gaff stick. Well, the person who owned the gaff stick, the guy who was in charge, was the gaffer. Tell the gaffer I want this done. Tell the gaffer I want that done. And pretty soon everyone just said, that's the gaffer. And that became, he was his technical title would have been chief lighting technician. But they call him the gaffer. Mr. Demerit, you are a font of wisdom. You should teach a class. I do. <laughs> here's, a, here's another thing you can. that's sort of fun. The, con, the words best boy. Mm-hmm. Where did that come from? Well, quite often in the early days of film, you weren't 100% sure that the people who were working for you in an electric grip, because they were sort of the same thing in the beginning, um, could read. All right? So when they needed something done, they'd say to the gaffer, Hey, we need this done. We need this filled out. Can you make this chart? And he'll say, and he always said, I'll put my best boy on it. Right? And then it just became, who's the best boy? Why, why do I go bug the gaffer about it? Who's the best boy here? 
I'm the best boy here. So they were just <clears throat> automatically excluding all the women on the crew. Um, because there weren't any. <laughs> I know. Well, I, but, I, okay, there's, that's, that's really not true. If you look in the in the in the silent era, was the greatest time of diversity uh, ever. There were many female think, directors, yeah. many people of color. There were many production companies, and then Edison decided to go to war because he wanted to pat- own the patents to all cameras. And he literally would send like people pretending to be extras on sets. And when they saw they were using a camera that had his patent stuff in it, they'd take out baseball bats, sometimes the guns, and they'd smash the equipment. And they were trying to shut down anyone who who wasn't paying the patent fee to Edison. So what happened? Well, a bunch of people who were like, I, I, we can't fight Edison in his home turf here in New York, New Jersey. So they decided we got to get as far away from him as we can. Are you I, kidding me? I'm not kidding. It had you. nothing to do with climate and locales and all that. Well, the that. sun was a, a big plus. It was Edison. Fleeing from Edison. And then they moved Goons, up and down Washington the West Coast. Uh, uh, and they would do things like, in those days, they would do things like um, build little boxes around the camera so you couldn't see what what was running on the inside so that if there wasn't, uh, they call them Edison's goons. If there was an Edison goon on your set, they couldn't necessarily see how it worked. Uh, and once they saw it, though, they would attack it, physically attack it. So this, this is the whole realm of the silent era. But when sound comes out, that all dies in a few months. That, that whole era is crushed. And a lot of, I mean, there were a lot of very accomplished female film directors mm-hmm. who were never invited in the Directors Guild because their career ended before the Directors Guild was formed because sound took over. And when the studios had to, had when you had to go to a studio to record sound, suddenly the studios got the power. And that was the end of an independent era. That's... Um <clears throat> That's amazing. Yeah. And uh, fortunately, we did get to the 23rd century <laughs> where we have women. Fortunately, we got to the 21st century where yes. we have women wrecking. Uh, there's been a lot can, of. Can uh, you name all the female directors of the original series? Uh, there are none. Yeah. So it's easy mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> well, uh, I, there are. Speaking of names, there's names on this below the line list that I recognize. Me too. Yeah. Um, yeah. That I've worked with. Actually. And that you've worked. Like who? Real quick. Um, uh, um, uh, the DP. Uh, Jerry Finnerman? Yeah, uh, Finnerman came on to Voyager. Uh, We had a second unit going, and he mentioned that he would love to do it, and so he was invited to light. And he brought his uh, oh my god, a gaffer no who idea. had worked with him for years and years, and Jerry I Finnerman, and I got to do that paint splash lighting. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, they they didn't have a painter. Right? We had a standby painter on Star Trek. It's an unbelievable luxury to have a standby painter. So, and they also, when they put yeah. sets together, they had to be careful about shooting off the seams. So they they were way more Babylon Five, the original series, mm-hmm. you know, than than uh, Deep Space Nine. Well, here's the here's the bottom line. So I included this for context. So we have above the line and below the line people and costs. We've got yeah. one document here where they actually track the budget. The pattern budget or whatever. Yes. Uh, and in these first three, Cat's – now, again, these aren't the aired. People are going, where's the muck time? We're talking about what was filmed. So yeah. Cat's Paw was first, Metamorphosis, Friday's Child, which had location. Yep. A lot of location. So we see the pattern. We see they all went over. <laughs> well, they go over right off on the number of days. Only only um, mm-hmm. Friday's Child does the six. So if you have a seven and an eight, there's three days over your pattern. So what show shot in three days? 
Right, nothing. Nothing. So they were already behind right off the bat. Shades of gray. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, so they're looking at 191,000. So we're looking at those above and below the line costs, and people can get an idea there of how much of a whole budget, how much is actually tied up with people. Right. Basically, your regular family of people, whether it's above or below. Right. Uh, another, another. Cool so you, you'll see in the series budget, which was the original numbers they crushed, right? Mm-hmm. You look at the the first one, hundred ninety one eight forty three. It'll be the same on everyone because right. that's the pattern. That's the pattern, right? Then they say, well, what was this individual episode supposed to be? One ninety, right? So this one was patterned to come in under pattern budget. What did it really spend? Two thirteen. Right. It's supposed to be the money saver. Right. Yeah, and, it, and well, it obviously went a day behind. Maybe two. That damn cat. <laughs> Blame the cat. Well, this is also why two things. I know that uh, uh, Doomsday Machine came in at five days yeah. and saved them, got them caught up. You read the making of Star Trek, you're seeing where they're always in a budget, running budget battle. NBC and Desilu both still true on to their this backs. Day. Yeah. Still true to this day. Yeah. And they started offering a $500 director bounty if a director could bring a show in less than six days or at least on time, no overtime on six days. But right. And we look at these number amounts now and think, oh, how quaint. But, hey, money's money in whatever context and, and your little inflation. Yeah, I tell, I'll tell you, if you really want to feel it, just take the number. Take, just take that 213, 261. Go to an inflation calculator online. There's tons of them. Put in the year 1967 and see what it would be today. You'll go like, oh, Oh, I guess it is a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Everything is relative, right? Back then, you, that's more than the cost of... You could probably buy three houses, maybe four. Next Gen's pattern budget started off at a million and a half, roughly, and increased a little as they went along. But, yeah. And then today, we've got the multi-millions for Discovery, shooting on a lot more days. Very Cinematic, you can do that when you're... Well, you're also streaming. And streaming. Yeah, the objectives are different. It's not selling commercials. Oh, you know what? Uh... I don't want to take. I don't want to compete with your class that you teach, Mike. We've covered so much ground here, but it's fascinating to look at the numbers, get past the numbers for 1967. But also, here's how the show was put together. Here's your yeah. nuts and bolts, right? Yeah, uh, and, it's, and, and budgets are odd. It's a weird thing to think about, but these are what really determine whether the show survives or dies. And it's classic Star Trek, and they're handwritten. Yeah. Well, everything was handwritten. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Listen, Mike, this is so much fun. I've got to have you come back. We'll have you come back another time if you would. Okay. Okay, great. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Additional production by Ken Ray. Hey, all of our documents and your chance to comment are available right there on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Trek Files. Now, for more great podcasts, check out podcast.roddenberry.com. And for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47. That's me at LarryNimacek.com. Trek well, everybody. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.